Hi, welcome along to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast, and I am in esteemed company today. Um, it's a big welcome to Shahom Daz, Dr. Shahom Daz, who I have seen uh, on YouTube quite regularly recently. Um, I've watched his content, I've loved his content, I've liked his content, and I've shared his content uh, because we have got a few things in common, which we'll come to later in the podcast. But welcome. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. Not many people can, but you nailed it. No, oh, thank you, mate. For you. That was a big, that's a big relief, a big relief. But look, let, I mean, when I ask people to come on the show, you know, it, it's always good to get a little bit of background. And you were kind enough to send me an outline of your background, it, although you said it was brief. I can imagine you could have elaborated, but you're a fully qualified NHS doctor, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and you're based in London. Uh, in your professional role, you regularly assess mentally disordered offenders in prison, in court and in locked secure forensic psychiatric units such as Broadmoor Hospital that are reserved for the most dangerous and violent mentally ill patients somewhere where I have visited on many occasions in the 90s uh, not as an inmate or patient I hasten to add I also work for numerous you also work for numerous criminal courts in London as an expert witness during criminal trials for example given evidence for not guilty by reason of an insanity defenses including murder trials at the old bailey wow i mean that is quite a cv uh let's go back to the start though tell us a little bit about your upbringing where were you born and, and where were you raised so i was born i was born down south but i moved so down south around sort of slough and then i lived in windsor i think but i moved up north when i was seven to a very sleepy uh, middle-class white village called Poynton, which is in cheshire it was all right to be honest with you i, I don't have I have mixed emotions about my upbringing. I came from a very strict Indian family and I was the, we're the only Asian family in the entire village. I was the only um, non-white kid in my school. Uh, now it's absolutely fine. It's not a problem. But back then when I was young, it was, I was very uh, unsure about my identity and I was very kind of sensitive and paranoid about being different to everybody else. And I just wanted to fit in. Uh, I got into reasonable amounts of trouble considering how strict my parents were, but um, I was always sort of kind of forced and encouraged to study. So I did quite well at school. Uh, and then managed to get the grades to get into medicine. And the first opportunity I had, I just wanted to bolt as far away as possible from home. So I went to Edinburgh Medical School just because it well, it's a good medical school, but also because it was quite far away, uh, just to kind of reinvent myself and pretend to be cool. Fantastic. I mean, that's a, you know, that sounds like a very happy childhood and, and, and one where, you know, you, you clearly knew what you wanted to do from, from an early age. Um, no, <laughs> my parents clearly knew what they wanted me to do uh, from an mm. early age. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think I was a bit immature. I don't think I really had a plan. You know, I did, I studied medicine because I got the grades, uh, not because it ever really occurred to me, even when I was doing my degree, that I was eventually going to become a doctor, uh, just kind of, um, Weasel my way through exams, just crammed at the last minute. Um, got through it all. I failed a few exams and had to reset them, but I just about managed. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, I didn't really have any kind of foresight of what area I wanted to work in. I didn't even know forensic psychiatry existed as a subspecialty of medicine until much later on in my career. So it was quite a bit serendipitous that I ended up doing forensics. But when I did fall into it, I loved it immediately. Looking back, is there anything you might wanted to do then? I mean, were you into sport? Could you have, could we have been looking at a footballer or a cricketer or were you not that way inclined? Definitely not football or cricket. I was pretty decent at basketball, but decent when you're, you know, when you're in, in Cheshire, when you can beat all the other kids in your school is very different from actually playing competitive, which I learned when I got to uni and I tried to compete like at university level. Like I thought I was good, but actually I wasn't that good. Um, I think... I, if I was to pick another career, maybe be something like journalism or maybe being a barrister. So I, I have a lot of experience of being cross-examined and I would like to have been on the other side of the table with the big gowns and the wigs cross-examining people. Bit of interest in true crime then? Yeah, I think I've, I've always been interested in criminality. So from gangster rap to, you know, Snoop Doggy Dog and WA from when I was a teenager or younger to like violent mob films. So I always liked the macabre and I liked, um, I, I was sort of fascinated with criminality, gangs, mafia, mobs, stuff like that. Uh, but again, I didn't know that I could do anything professionally in medicine that would relate to any of that until much later on. 
Any particular names that stand out? Because obviously my story is is one of, you know, being a schoolboy who, you know, was all set to fail every exam at school, but then but then ultimately picked up a book called Professional Violence by John Pearson, read it in two days, was allowed to study it from the English exam, and, and the rest is history. I wrote to the craze, they wrote back, I ended up doing business with the craze buying bars, and it's, you know, that really influenced me, and it never influenced me to become a criminal. It influenced me in, in other ways in business. And, um, you know, was there any you know, particular criminals that you were fascinated with or was it just crime in general? Um, I think it was crime in general, crime in general. And um, there are a couple of a couple that I can think of. So Stan Tookie Williams, he was like with the founding member of the Crips. I remember reading his autobiography when I was um, in my late teens, I think. Uh, and I'm fascinated by the craze. Uh, just because they're such unique characters, they've got a certain swagger. And the other thing is just purely from a psychiatric point of view, what's interesting to me about the craze is that you've got two identical twins. So genetically, they're the same, but one has schizophrenia and one doesn't. And one with schizophrenia, they're both kind of violent, both end up killing people, allegedly. And But one ends up in Broadmoor, one ends up in prison. So just purely in terms of looking at them from an experimental level, it's like the perfect setup to see what mental illness does to an individual. It's interesting because obviously the craze and I could talk to you all day about them, uh, you know, having had such a, an in-depth relationship with them, visiting Reggie for 10 years in various institutions, visiting Ronnie and Broadmoor for five years and becoming friends with Charlie, their older brother, for a 10-year period as well. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that people tend to forget that Ronnie was diagnosed in later life as a paranoid schizophrenic. And um, that, that, I think that is what makes the craze per se so interesting and, and you've picked up on that as well that you know one of them ended up being sectioned and, and put into Broadmoor for the criminally insane which was the hospital and Reggie saw 32 years out in in you know variety of prisons and it's yeah it, it is a strange case isn't it I have to ask what was it like being in Broadmoor and what was Ronnie like how did he interact with you as um as a youngster and bearing in mind I was only 19 uh, when I used to travel to uh, Crowthorne in Berkshire it was it was quite eerie that very first visit because it was an old Victorian building that only just started to modernise it then. Um, and once you got through the you know the, the visit and order procedure and got walked through those corridors and through those locked gates um, into the you know to the bowels of Broadmoor, it was it was very much like a hospital. You know, walking along the wards, you it, I, I didn't take it in the very first time, but as I was walking down the corridors, left and right. It was actually walking past the patients' rooms, and um, you know I noticed that on later visits that the names were on the doors, and you know you, you were walking down Henley Ward or you were walking down um, you know Somerset Ward, um, depending on where you were going to visit your your, your friend or, or whoever you were visiting, um, and then you you know on, on the visits that I went on, I was walked into this big um, you know open area which had a stage on the left hand side with these you know red flock velvet curtains, and at the far end of the room was uh, you know some double glass doors leading out into the conservatory then into the gardens and on the right hand side was where the the nurses would go and you know get the canteen and uh, it was it was bizarre you know i was i was only as i say you know in my teenage years and um to be in the company of one of you know england's most notorious gangsters who you know still looked and dressed the part when he came in was was really really bizarre um, you know, he came in, he was still dressed in the suits from Savile Row. He still had the white shirts on with our care, um, you know, stitched in. He had a handkerchief, silk handkerchief tucked into his pocket, nice silk tie with a gold tie pin. He had Gucci shoes on, um, you know, which were polished so you could see your face in them. He had a pinky ring on his finger and, and, and gold horn rimmed glasses. And he used to sit down at the Formica table after he'd shook hands and, and welcomed us. And he'd click his fingers and the nurse would come over and pick one of his cigarettes out and light his cigarette for him. And then he would ask if you wanted a drink uh, or something to eat. And then he'd click his fingers again. And, you know, the nurse would bring over a can of non, you know, non-alcoholic calibre lager for Ron and stick it on the table and pour it into the, the, the plastic glass for him. And then, you know, you would order something from, for, you know, for yourself. And it was just bizarre. And, and Ron, back in the 60s, um, you, you know, when you read the books about the craze, used to love the smoky bar-like saloon bar atmosphere. And he, and he was like that on visits. He would he would chain smoke John Player specials. He would never finish a cigarette 
and he'd just love clicking his fingers and the, the nurse coming to light the cigarette and there'd just be this puff of smoke around our visit. It was it was bizarre, absolutely bizarre when I think back to it. But I can still see those visits as clear now as they were when I was visiting Ronnie Cray in 1990. And did you find him like prickly or sensitive or not? He was a big, he was a big character in his own right. His eyes were very dark, um, understandably, because of the kind of person he was, but also because of the the medication he was on. Um, but he had a wicked sense of humour, and you know, many would say it's because he was a wicked man. But he he was very interested in what you were doing on the outside. Um, it's much like Charles Salvador, who I continue to speak to and visit uh, to this day. He, he is somebody who. If he rings me when I'm out and about in Newcastle, maybe as I'm walking down by the river, he'll want to know. Um, he'll want to know what what the you know what's what can I see on me left and right? What's the water like? Is there somebody on a boat? What's you know what what's the sky like? Is it blue? He, he wants you to describe what outside of you know outside of those bars is like. And and Ronnie was very much the same on visits. He wanted to know what you know what was going on in the outside world. He wanted to know what I'd been doing at work. What was you know what was the latest what was the latest thing I'd watched at the movies? What was you know how was the family? You know how was your girlfriend? Um, you know what book were you reading? And it was all very you know you know very interesting to go and visit. Reggie was the complete polar opposite. He was all business, 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 pulling bits of paper out of his top pocket, wanting you to ring this person, do this. I've, got, I've been offered this opportunity. And that was how Reg got through 32 years of incarceration in, in the system. But Ronnie was Ronnie was medicated. And the only time I was ever concerned about Ronnie Cray was when I would get a letter. And I've got all of the letters still. And the letters sometimes, if your medication had changed, Ron wasn't the greatest writer. Both twins wrote very neatly when they went to prison, but it deteriorated. It became like a prison style, very childlike scroll, and um, almost similar to each other. Again, that twins thing. But the the scroll that Ron would put out um, sometimes was maybe he'd overwritten letters six, seven times, which was quite distressing because you're thinking, wow, the medication or he's in a depression or whatever, and he's... You know, he wasn't the quickest of writers and he's clearly just going over it, over it, over it again. And that just, you know, that just showed the mental illness. So it was, it was, it was quite, quite alarming that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's which fascinating. Yeah. We, I'm sure, I'm sure we could take up a full podcast on your show talking about the craze, which would be interesting. I mean, you, you obviously, as I mentioned at the start, you know, have had to go to Broadmoor. How did you find it? So I used to work in Broadmoor. It was a special interest. So I'd go there once a week for about seven or eight months when I was a middle grade doctor. I have to say, contrary to what you might expect, I found Broadmoor to be more settled and contained than the other places I worked in. So I did most of my training in medium secure units and they felt to me like more tenser, potentially more dangerous environments because once you get past all the locked doors and all the security and you know the um the big wire fences once you're in the wards the patients were pretty much free free flowing in the medium secure units whereas in broadmoor i worked in the high dependency unit so most of the patients there were in long-term segregation so as you'll know because broadmoor is a hospital it's geared up for rehabilitation it's not geared up to just keep people locked up uh, as you would punish in a prison uh, with the exception of this particular ward because the patients had intractable mental illnesses so even though we threw all of the really powerful antipsychotics they might help a little bit dampen down the voices dampen down the paranoia but they were still quite dangerous so they were only allowed out one or two at a time out of a ward of about 15 16 people and the nurses had to literally follow them on one-to-one observations the whole time so because of that even though the potential of violence that was there it felt more serene and more contained and it just felt quite clinical as well. You know, it's not like you might see on TV where you have you know, these really old buildings and lots of dark corners and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very well lit, very long corridors, lots of glass windows so everybody could see everybody. So, yeah, that's I found it different to how I was expecting it. I found it quite docile and quite contained. Yeah, I mean, any any high profile, you know, inmates that you saw there? Um, not really, no. Um, I, unfortunately, I'm not. If I did, I w- wouldn't really be allowed to talk about them um, simply because it's a kind of doctor-patient relationship. So I can't talk individually about any patients. Um, but the ones that I saw in that ward were none of them were high profile that I knew of. There is a possibility that uh, that there were people that were in the press at some point, but they changed they uh, disguise their identities by giving them new names sometimes. 
I obviously bumped into uh, one man, literally, and that was Peter Sutcliffe, uh, somebody who uh, you know people will know better as the, the Yorkshire Ripper, there with another yeah. couple, uh, well, an interesting guy, Jimmy Savile, I'm sure many of you will have watched the uh, the Netflix programme, if you haven't, give it a watch, but yeah, the, you know, the Yorkshire Ripper was on a visit behind me uh, one day, knocked my chair when I was visiting Ronnie Cray, and I turned round, you know, and like all Geordie lads do, expecting somebody just to say sorry for knocking your chair, but this guy was... Looking straight forward, talking to an old granny um, who was visiting them on this particular occasion. And, um, yeah, Ronnie Cray wasn't very happy about that. He uh, went into a bit of a rage and had to be uh, calmed down by the nurses. But, yeah, fascinating, fascinating place. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's once once you've been never never really forgotten Broadmoor, that, that's got to be it. I mean, when, when you go to see uh, patients, obviously you can't talk about particular patients who, who were in there. But, I mean, is it face-to-face? Are you, are, you, are you doing that kind of interview or talk with people through, you know, through a... a, a cell door hatch or a room hatch or do you have to talk to them you know when they're in a body bag do they still do that we hear some horror stories from Broadway I'm afraid it's not quite as uh, sexy or as exciting about that no we sit I would sit with them in a room so most of the time they've been there for quite quite a while so they've been risk assessed so the vast majority of the time they were safe enough to sit with me but what's interesting about Broadmoor and it's different from other secure units is that there would be a nurse who would whose only job during my interview would be to sit in the corner of the room, either in the corner of the same room or on the outside of the room with a big glass window, perspex window, watching us the whole time. So that if the patient got up quickly or if they became agitated, that nurse could come in quickly and try and calm them down or even pull their alarms for the response team. Um, that, that never happened to me in Broadmoor. It's happened to me in prison, but not Broadmoor. Um, and so I actually felt relatively safe. It felt contained. Whereas in medium secure units, you just go on the ward and there are staff members there, but everybody's, it's a lot more hectic, a lot more movement. Staff are always busy. So they're not, they're not watching out for you specifically. Like they'll know that I'm on the ward doing an assessment, but they'll kind of lead me to it uh, and wait for me to finish and knock on their door. Whereas in Broadmoor, there's always somebody there um, all the time to make sure that nobody's kicking off. Is it easy for, for somebody to to feign mental illness to get into Broadmoor? Because I've spoken to many um, you know former criminals over the years who you know for want of a better expression have tried to get themselves nutted off because they thought yeah. it was going to be easier to get through a long term sentence. Is it is it is it easy to to, to, to do that? No, it's not, and I'll explain. I'll explain why. Um, I've also heard that term nutted off, and I think there's a misconception that your time in a, of a secure unit is going to be easier than prison. And I suppose in some ways it's easier in that it's a nicer environment. You're not locked in a cell 23 hours a day. You're actively encouraged to come out of your cell unless you're so dangerous that you, they literally can't let you out. Uh, and you engage in, in activities and therapy from, from playing pool to newspaper groups to talking therapy. So there's always something to do. So in that way, I suppose it is an easier ride. But I would argue that in many ways it's harder because you're surrounded by very mentally unwell people, uh, especially in a place like Broadmoor. So if you're relatively sane, then you're going to struggle to have a normal conversation with anybody apart from staff members for a long period of time. And I think that bothers some people who are, who are on the uh, less severe end of the spectrum of, of being severely unwell. And crucially, there's no such thing as a finite discharge date in Broadmoor. So if you've got a prison sentence, as you'll know, there's a tariff, there's a, there's a day that you're going to be released. As long as you haven't you know, stabbed or beaten somebody else up in prison, you're going to be released on that day. Whereas in these secure units, it's ultimately up to the consultant uh, forensic psychiatrist in charge to decide when your risk is decreased. And that can quite often extend way beyond the equivalent prison sentence for the original crime. Like, so if you're still hearing voices despite medication, or if you're still breaking boundaries and getting into fights and arguments on the prison ward, or if you, you know, test positive for drugs, for example, then all, those are all reasons why your discharge would be delayed. So sometimes people are in there for, for years or decades, even if their original offense isn't that serious. Uh, but sorry, I've gone off topic, Steve. You asked me about whether it's um, easy to fake. It's easy to fake hearing voices, and it's easy to fake being paranoid. But in my opinion, it's not easy to do that convincingly. And it's not easy to do that for an extended period of time. So anyone can sit in a room with me and say they're hearing voices, but I'm not naive enough to just take their word for it. So I will look at all the evidence. 
uh, I'll look at the evidence of their offense. So say it was like a murder or an assault. I'd be looking at CCTV footage, if that's available, witness statements of anybody who, who actually saw the crime, witness statements of the police officers who arrested the person, which is usually quite shortly afterwards, uh, police transcripts of the interviews with the defendant. So all of these things, I'm looking for consistency of mental illness. You know, is the person agitated? Are they actually hearing voices? And if they're not, but they claim to be, after the crime to try and convince me that they're unwell, then I'm very suspicious. And also, I also get a report from professionals who have been watching them more recently. So if they're already remanded to a secure unit like Broadmoor, I'll be talking to the nursing staff. If they're in prison on remand, I'll be talking to the prison officers and I'll be looking at their medical notes. So I don't just take the presentation in front of me uh, into account. I also look at all the evidence from around the entire period of time that they've been locked up, even the period of time at the crime. And the last thing I'd say, Steve, is that from my experience, when people are genuinely really psychotic, so if they're genuinely hearing voices, they genuinely believe that strangers are trying to hurt them, kill them, poison them, for example, which I see fairly regularly, they don't tell me uh, straight away. So they've never met me before. I'm just some fuddy-duddy in a suit. And if I sit opposite them, they it takes a lot for me to tease out exactly all their paranoid thoughts and their conspiracies. And, you know, that's part of the skill of being a psychiatrist, being able to do that. Whereas somebody who's faking it, usually they have an agenda. So they try and convince me right from the first couple of minutes of meeting me that they're hearing voices and they're paranoid. So it's actually quite easy to spot, I would say. I mean, I, I alluded to it a little earlier, just about, you know, things that the horror stories that I've heard from the likes of Charlie Salvador about the liquid kosh, Davy Glover, who I've, I've interviewed recently, you know, also experienced, you know, that kind of treatment and, you know, the body belt and being tied down, something, something that we see as well on, you know, maybe films about old asylums, etc. Have, have things improved dramatically since those days? Yeah, yeah. So there most as i said most of my work is in the medium secure unit i didn't actually see anybody kick off in broadmoor i'm sure it happens but i didn't see it because i was in these high dependency unit where there's so many nursing staff around when it happens in medium secure units i wouldn't say it was very frequent but somebody is is going to lose their temper probably once every few weeks within your average medium secure ward usually over something like their leave being stopped or because they've tested positive for, for um, cannabis for example or because they've they've been aggressive or violent towards a nurse and i'd say 90 percent of the time people are talked down so nursing staff the doctor will come and try and calm them down and usually that works and then sometimes we offer them medication. So you offer them a sedative like lorazepam, diazepam. And if they pop that, then within sort of 15, 20 minutes, they're, they're much calmer. And mostly patients want it because they don't want to feel agitated. If they don't, then you might have to escalate it depending on the level of violence to physically restraining them. So that does happen, but it's not um, that common. And when that happens, there's like a whole protocol. The nurses are trained to do it properly. So nurses will come around for the emergency response team. They will um, restrain the patient and then walk them to the seclusion room. So the seclusion room is a bit like the old the, or the modern version of what is the old concept of a padded cell. So it's like a locked room with glass panels to, so that we can see inside and patients are kept there until they calm down. Um, but the whole point of using the seclusion room is to try and use it for the minimum time uh, that is necessary. So we regularly review patients that go into the seclusion room, offer them sedatives and medication if they need it. But as soon as they're well enough to come out on the ward, we let them back out. So I think when you look at these things on TV and you see these these um, depictions of mental health units, especially ones for offenders, uh, like Nurse Ratchet springs to mind, just I've seen that recently. There seems to be this kind of emphasis on lots of people jumping on top of you, tackling you to the ground, uh, you know, restraining you, injecting you, shoving you into a room indefinitely for days or weeks. But it's from my experience, it's really not like that. I think a lot of the people who I've been interviewed over the years, whether it be Freddie Froman, uh, who obviously was a, a close associate of the, the Cray twins and a, you know, one of the top London underworld figures in his own right, or whether it's been Paul Gascoigne, a guy who had the world at his feet at the World Cup in 1990. I think the thing that tends to spring out from a lot of people's stories is trauma. Um, and, and you, I guess, have, have got an opinion on you know, trauma from childhood and how that can be processed, um, which can lead eventually to, to, you know, either a disorder of the brain or mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. So an uncomfortable truth, I think, it, from my patient cohort. So I, I, something I should, I would really like to make a point about is, is that the vast majority of people that have mental illnesses are not violent. 
uh, and I don't want to add to that stigma. It just happens to be the ones that I see who go through the criminal justice routes are violent. Otherwise, they won't be uh, remind, they won't be sectioned to these specific hospitals. But an uncomfortable truth is that most of them are victims in some way or another in earlier life. So almost 90, 95% of them have either had um, neglectful parents or physically or sometimes even sexually abusive carers or parents. They often come from poverty. They've often witnessed violence from a young age, like domestic violence between their parents, often bullies horrifically at school. Um, They have other issues like drug and alcohol problems, homelessness, poverty. So yeah, the vast majority of people I see have some sort of trauma or abuse from childhood and it can affect you in so many different ways so many different ways so some people are relatively actually unaffected and stable i would say Uh, some people develop actual mental illnesses so depression anxiety are very common post-traumatic stress disorder which i'm sure you and your viewers would have heard of is very common if you have a a life-threatening usually a one-off kind of incident as opposed to like a series of of, uh, smaller incidents so that forms that presents in the form of reliving the experience flashbacks nightmares uh, also being hyper vigilant which is when you're constantly on alert and very anxious all the time and like emotional numbing as well and then finally the other thing is it can cause personality disorders so that's different from mental illnesses because it's not like a, it's not a temporary state of being different it's actually embedded in you uh, and you can be antisocial personality disorder that's something i see very frequently that's people who regularly offend who are um, career criminals who don't have any empathy, who are impulsive, aggressive, don't care about the the law, don't care about the rights of others. Yeah, I mean, Freddie Foreman's uh, story that he, he told me many years ago was about, um, you know, when he was seven or eight and there was a runaway horse running down the street and uh, the horse crashed into the bakery. Um, the horse was, was in distress and the kids, as they would, all gathered around the scene of this, you know, this large animal, you know, lying you know dying in the Vegas window and how this guy with a long trench coat and a, a bowler hat came down with a, a little attache case and the kids were all watching watching the horse breathing and then this guy just came out opened the case pulled out um you know this rather crude looking uh gun uh, like contraption put it to the uh, the horse's head tied it around the horse's head and just shot the horse dead wow. um which was putting the horse out of its misery um, yeah. in, in, in the right way because it was dying but all of those children who stood and watched that just saw the life drain out of the horse and yeah. Fred always goes back to that event in his life and says that's when I realised how cheap life was you know and, and and for me that's fascinating and and as for Gaza the reason I picked those two people is that Paul Gascoigne of course as we know is has been, you know, addicted to, to alcohol, addicted to cocaine, addicted to Red Bull from, from my time on the doors in Newcastle when I used to see Paul on a regular basis. And he was addicted, he had an addictive personality, but he was always trying to block the demons out with those things such as alcohol and, and, and class A drugs. And he always, when you listen to his story, you put that down to the fact that, you know, a young friend of his, when they were kids, died in his arms. Um, and again, it's that kind of, um, trauma um, or post-traumatic stress disorder, which which caused them to have different paths in life, but you know ultimately things which have affected their, their life in later years. Yeah, you would have thought that whoever put the horse down would have at least had the foresight to to get the kids to to leave and not to witness it, but clearly not. Yeah, I think war babies as well. I mean, you know, Fred Fred lived in that period of life um, during the Second World War, and you know he. He has countless recollections of seeing, you know, you know, people, you know, dying, you know, and, and bodies being laid out in the streets of London after a bomb had hit the, uh, you know, hit, hit the, the the street next door, etc. So, you know, I think I think a lot of those a lot of those war babies, if you like, you know, went through that kind of trauma. Not not to forget as well being, you know, you know, taken away from their parents and sent on trains, you know, when they were evacuated. Uh, to go and live with other families it's uh you know it, it was you know a time of a time of war which you know led to, to a lot of trauma within a lot of young people yeah it's horrific to think what a whole generation of children went through and are going through you know with ukraine and russia it's just um happening again it's like a cycle yeah. okay um, i mean looking at something else here and, and it's sectioning people and, and again I, I i look at gaza situation i know the family very well and um, there has been times where they have pushed to try and, and have Paul sectioned 
um, over over the years? And is that is that something that's easy to do? So I've I've been involved in sectioning uh, lots of people, probably thirty or forty different people in my career. Um, it is unfortunately, I would have to say that the system, in my opinion, is really clunky and it, it's not it doesn't run very smoothly, which is a pain in the ass for a psychiatrist, but it's it's a lot worse, I think, for the patient. So what happens is when you find some, when somebody comes in, presents, either they might be brought in by the police, say post suicide attempt, or if they're uh, you know. Yeah, obviously agitated or unwell running in the streets or if they come through a and e for example if their family have brought them in and they're worried about them making paranoid comments then they have to see a series of doctors usually there's a junior doctor uh, who will be on call who's an a and e who then has to escalate it to a middle grade doctor so junior doctors don't have the power to section anybody they're not section 12 approved by the secretary of state whereas registrars which are middle grade doctors or consultants like myself that are the higher grade doctors can so the reason i'm mentioning all this is that unfortunately there's quite a delay i think especially in busy times like in on a saturday night in a e for the junior doctor to then get the senior doctor in so then the senior doctor comes in, then they have to do their own assessment. And there's very specific criteria of the Mental Health Act. So somebody having a mental illness is not enough. Somebody having symptoms is also not enough. They have to have symptoms that lead to some kind of risk. So it's either a risk to themselves, like suicide, a risk to other people, or a risk to their health deteriorating if they're not, if they're not treated. And then if the registrar agrees they need to come in, they make one of two medical recommendations. You need two independent doctors to make the recommendation. So then they have to phone a senior social worker, it's known as an AMP, AMHP, Approved Mental Health Practitioner, who's like on call for the whole geographical area. So if the AMP has got a couple of other people to section, it might realistically take anything from three, four hours, sometimes longer. I think in my career, I've seen it take up to 10 hours for the AMP to get there with another independent doctor. So now the point is, is that it's, it's the system is there to make it fair. So it's not just one doctor's uh, opinion. And they intentionally make the two doctors independent. So you can't be kind of colluding with somebody who you work with in the same hospital, um, you know, because if, if somebody's doing, if somebody's sectioning a patient unfairly, in theory, if you get somebody who's, who they've never met, who works in a different hospital, then two people are un unlikely to have an unfair opinion. But in practice, it just delays the whole system. So it can take anything from maybe three or four hours from when the patient's first seen to sometimes 12, 14 hours from when the patient's first seen. And remember, these are patients that have come in at their lowest ebb. You know, as I said before, post-suicide, some they might have taken an overdose uh, or they might be paranoid but not have insight. So in their psychotic mind, they believe that people are trying to hurt them or following them. So now they're being told to wait for a very long time in a really disturbing, um, high energy uh, place of A&E with lots of other people who are around who are screaming out in pain. So it's just a really clunky kind of system to get in. And then eventually when those doctors come in, they interview the patient and it might be the third or fourth time the patient's been interviewed uh, during that presentation then they go off, have a discussion, do all the paperwork. And then if the patient is detainable, so if they meet the criteria for the Mental Health Act, then at that point they're sectioned, so they're not allowed to leave. And then other nurses from the hospital they'll end up in come and transport them. So I, even though I kind of understand why the system has to be done very carefully, of course it does. It's, it's um, really unfair to section somebody for the wrong reasons or when you're not looking at the whole clinical picture. I understand that. But I also think it's flawed because I just think it's a horrible experience for that patient, not knowing what's going on, waiting for such a long period of time. In your time in prison, I guess as well, you've seen the the, the, the you know the effect that drugs has had on inmates, and um, you know, spice, of course, is something which we've seen you know the horrendous results of. Many many inmates have managed to to get phones into prison. We see videos of you know people being unconscious, you know, vomiting, and you know you know foaming at the mouth and completely incapable of moving on that on that on the mattresses. Uh, of course, there are other synthetic cannabinoids you know available in prison as well. They're ravaging the you know, the prison population, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. They really are. Spice is, is a scary phenomenon. So it's relatively new in that I, it didn't it wasn't around when I started my career as a psychiatrist. The reason I think spice is so popular or the equivalent is because it's very cheap. It is quite easy to smuggle in. Like you can have different forms of it, including like a sort of spray form that you can put on on paperwork or on paper. 
Uh, so they've even found it in like children's drawings with spice sprayed over it. Uh, and it is very hard to detect on most urine drug screens on the on the older ones that are usually used, which pick up things like cannabis, cocaine, and and the scientists keep making these new screens or these new uh, drug tests, but they keep changing the scientists keep changing bits of the actual chemical itself so that it evades the test. Uh, but as you say, it, it, from what I can tell, I've seen a few prisoners on Spice and I've also seen the videos that you've been talking about. I just don't understand why people take it because it doesn't seem fun. They don't, they don't, it's like, I get why people take drugs because it gets you high and you know I can't condone it, but I, I completely understand why people do it. But Spice, from what I've seen, it just makes you very, very agitated. I've seen people that have become completely psychotic, I've seen a man stab himself um, in the cheek with a pair of scissors when he was high off, off Spice. I've seen people throw throw themselves off landings because they're so agitated and so disorientated. So I don't understand why it's so popular. I think for some people, the the concept of serving time is so difficult that they would rather have any kind of change in mental state, even if it is agitation and psychosis, just to help the time pass or just to be in a different mental state than to accept reality. What about um, self-harm? and suicides in prison there seems to be a you know a horrendous increase in those two things as well yeah absolutely so that's something that i i see quite regularly i think the ultimate problem is is what do you do with people who self-harm severely in prison it's very rare that they end up getting transferred to hospital the reason being is because if it worked, then you'd open the floodgates of people self-harming just so that they can leave prison. Sometimes, from my experience, if they've cut themselves really badly or taken a serious overdose, they might go to like an A&E and get patched up. So if they've taken like a paracetamol overdose, for example, they'll take the, the specific antidote to that. Or if they've got a really bad scar uh, or a cut, they'll be stitched up, maybe even have plastic surgery. But they're almost always returned to prison, even if their risk is quite high. And instead, the prison try and deal with it. So they can either be transferred to like the segregation unit or a healthcare unit where they're locked in a cell and there's doctors and nurses on site. Um, the prison, the prisons do have their own strategies. So you, you might have heard of an ACT, an ACCT, uh, Acute Care and, and Custodial Treatment. So that is where somebody who's deemed to be high risk has an extra level of support. They check in with one particular member of the mental health team or one particular prison officer a couple of times a day. And they have like, they're constantly monitored. So they actually have an act booked that follows them around. So if they go to work or if they go to the canteen as prisoners, a prison officer takes this book and writes down any concerns. So it gets passed around by all staff. So just a, an, an extra level of supporting self-harm. But the, the fact of the matter is, if somebody really wants to self-harm in prison, then they're going to find a way. You know, you can remove all the sharp objects, but you can't watch them 24 hours a day. So it is definitely a risk. And it's something I think that's getting worse. And the reason it's getting worse is because conditions within prisons are getting worse, not just from overcrowding, but spice that we talked about to more uh, more violence, more bullying, more intimidation, less staff support, less prison officers on the floor. So it is something that's just kind of progressively getting worse. And it has been for a few years. And I guess that doesn't help people with mental illness either. Yeah, absolutely. So people who have mental illnesses before they get to prison, like depression, anxiety, often they deteriorate once they're in prison for all those reasons I mentioned. So from the bullying to being separated from the family to intimidation to drug use, uh, or they develop new mental illnesses whilst they're in prison. So I've seen prisoners who've been very seriously assaulted, I've seen prisoners who have had like boiling water thrown over them due to drug debts, and they end up developing things like PTSD. Uh, and there is mental health care provided in prison. There are uh, in-reach teams with psychiatrists and nurses. I used to be a member of one myself, but I'd be the first to admit that we're really struggling with the caseload. So the number of prisoners that come in compared to the number of staff that are available is is huge compared to out in the community. So a lot of the teams are just just crippled under the weight of the uh, under the weight of the waiting list. So sometimes we see prisoners who are completely floridly psychotic, you know, hearing voices, screaming, dirty protests, smearing feces all over the wall, and they don't even get seen for several weeks only because the waiting list is so long. So yeah, it's a it's a scary time, scary environment to work in. And I guess the knock-on effect of that is that, you know, those people who suffer with mental illness, maybe they've enhanced it with drugs, are going to become increasingly violent as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're a prison officer and you're already dealing with 
violent violent prisoners or at least the potential risk of violent prisoners on wings for whatever reason gang beefs and if you've got somebody who's acutely psychotic the easiest thing to do instead of trying to give them uh, the proper help that they need the easiest and quickest thing to do is to like chuck them in the segregation and to lock them up just to contain them but obviously that means that they get even more agitated they're spending longer periods of time without getting access to the medication they need uh, so it just makes it worse i think it makes it better in the short term but worse in the long term what are the hurdles that you face and the difficulties you face when you're trying to treat somebody in prison with mental illness? Yeah, it's a good question, Steve. Um, so there's quite a few things. One, one issue that makes it really difficult is that there's a lack of information sent to us. So you probably know this, but the prison system is really disjointed. It's just to get the medical records themselves into prison is an absolute hurdle it's a ball ache sometimes it takes weeks for the records to follow prisoners especially when a lot of prisoners before they came into prison have such chaotic and nomadic lifestyles they're often not registered with the gp or they often move around areas uh, so it's it's quite hard to even source the medical notes number one and even within the prison the communication is very poor so when i was working in the prison i'd frequently ask the offender manager to send me the details of the person's offense for example if i'm trying to send them to a secure hospital i need to know whether they can go to low secure medium secure broadmoor uh, and it takes weeks even just to get that piece of information from working in the prison that's how um, chaotic the system of communication is so that's one another thing is we were talking before about about patients faking mental illness unfortunately uh, it has to be said that some prisoners do fake mental illness because they want medication they want medication that gives them a buzz so when i was running prison clinics i would see probably at least once a day or every couple of days a prisoner who i think was was faking or exaggerating mental illness because they wanted uh, medication um, i suppose another issue would be that prisoners quite often disappear so I didn't really uh, understand this or expect this when I first started, but a lot of prisoners go to courts. I either get moved prison without any notice. And even though I was working there, I never got told. So I would start like one of the psychologists in my team would start some therapy or I'd start a new medication and, and I'm gradually increasing the dose. And then I come back to see the prisoner like the next week and they've just gone. Either they've moved prison or the charges have been dropped or they've served time on remand, which has counted toward their prison sentence. And because it's quite a, a relatively low level offense, they get released, which is good for them, obviously. I don't, you know, happy that they managed to get released, but it also means that on the outside, they're not getting treatment. On the inside, finally, they've seen a doctor and the doctor tries to start, set up a plan, a management plan, and it doesn't work because the prison has disappeared. And finally, I'd say the other problem is that there's really long waiting lists to get into these secure units that I was talking about. Like the, the, the waiting list for Broadmoor in itself is several months. Even the medium secure units is often several weeks. So you'd have these prisoners that are really, really unwell. And if they don't have insight, if they don't believe they're unwell and they don't take medication, then uh, you can't enforce meds on them. So you can't restrain prisoners. You can't inject them with antipsychotics. You can under the Mental Health Act in hospitals, but you can't use the Mental Health Act in prisoners. So you'd sometimes get prisoners who would be psychotic for weeks and they'd be absolutely tortured. And you can tell that they're just really, really distressed hearing voices, but there's nothing we can do. We can't enforce medication. We have to wait until a bed becomes available in a secure unit. Let's, you know, look at a hypothetical here, but, you know, somebody like Charlie Salvador, you know, he was in Broadmoor, he's done Brampton, he's done most of those units and uh, caused a bit of damage on the roof, it has to be said, uh, which is probably the reason he still finds himself incarcerated, although now in prison. But, I mean, how would you, how would you risk assess somebody like him, a violent patient, um, and, and make a decision to, to allow him to leave there and go back to the prison population? Uh, you mean from somewhere like Broadmoor back to yeah. prison? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So he, first of all, he's a fascinating character. I've never met him in person, but um, I've made a video about him. I, I just uh, I find his story really, really interesting. And as you'll know, what's one thing that makes him quite unique is that his in, his original offence wasn't even that serious. He was only, I think, seven years was his original sentence, and it's extended beyond forty years because of this repeated violence you're talking about. So to answer your question. I don't think you can ever confidently say that he won't be violent again. The best that you can do is that you can observe him for a period of time uh, without any incident. And to, as, to how long, what that period of time should be, if you're discharging somebody into the community, it's usually about six months. So I wouldn't, when I was working in, in secure units, I wouldn't be considering somebody for discharge unless they'd been serious in, uh, incident free for about six months. With 
Bronson Salvador, I don't know whether I don't know whether that's realistic really. I don't know if he'd go six months without um without any kind of violent incident. I think for me I would accept a shorter period of time depending on the intensity. So if he just lost his temper and shouted at a nurse, I you know, prisons can prisons can deal with inmates being a bit um narky. I'm sure they're used to that, so that wouldn't bother me. But if he was like, you know, concealing weapons or trying to smuggle drugs in or taking somebody hostage, which is one of his favorite hobbies, then uh, for me that would reset the time. Every time he did that, that would reset the time that he needs to be observed. So if he did that, I'd want at least three to six months from then of no of no errant behaviour before I think he'd be safe enough. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about Charlie is he has a, a public parole now, uh, hopefully July this year, and he has not committed any violent crime or assaults uh, for over five years now. So, so what's your thoughts on that, Steve? Do you think that's, has he changed as a person? Is he the same, but he's managed to contain it because he wants to be free? Or what do you think is going on? I personally think he's changed for the better. Um, it was all about, you know, fighting authority, uh, fighting the regime, um, and, and, you know, impressing the peers when he was a younger man. And um, he suffered greatly for that. And once you get into that rut of, um, you know, violence and, and kidnapping and, and, and you create an issues for the system, you're never going to beat the system. And, and, and the many conversations of, uh, that, that I've had with Charlie over the years, some of which are available on my YouTube channel, which, you know, we've put out there so people can hear the real Charlie Salvador. Um, you know, he has changed. He, he, you know, he's, he's, you know he's, he's in his twilight years now. He deserves the chance, like, like any other man, to be able to come out and give it a go. And, um, you know, he's not going to be, you know, throwing people around and, and committing crimes. He's learned his lesson. I, I genuinely feel you know, that the time is right to let him out, but it's not my decision. At the moment, it looks less and less likely that this government will will allow somebody of his stature and his reputation to walk through these gates. But what he has done is, is of course, win the opportunity to have his parole hearing heard in public. And that in itself is, is a victory for him against the system and an interesting one, I feel. Okay, I'll tell you what I think. So this is this is quite a lot of speculation because I've I've not met the guy uh, like you have, but from what I know about him, I think that his violence has made him a celebrity in the past. So everybody's heard of him. Everyone knows the name. I mean, he's probably more better known as Charles Bronson than he is Charles Salvador. But everybody knows who he is. He was friends with the Crays, especially Ronnie Cray, wasn't he? Again, yeah. because of his reputation, uh, he. He, they had a movie made out, uh, made after him, I think, with Tom Hardy, again, because of his reputation. I think he got married whilst he was in prison at one point. I don't think any of those things would have happened had he not escalated his violence. So I think he almost used violence to make part of his identity. He was somebody when he was this sort of uh, enigmatic, charming, but violent individual. And I think over time, that's kind of worn its course. And he's realized that there's not that much left of his life. And although he might have enjoyed the notoriety at the time, it's probably not worth it in his mind to him anymore to be that image anymore. So I think he's kind of grown past it. As to whether he'll be released or not, I mean, if what you what you say is accurate, I'm, I'm sure you're right, then five years is a long time to have been able to play by the rules and, and not you know, push boundaries, ex exhibit violence. So I think it'd be quite unfair if he didn't get released after five years of being settled. Having said that, as, as you probably know, the parole board have taken quite a beating recently in the press for releasing violent people. So uh, John Warboys, they released him a couple of years ago, I believe, a serial rapist. Uh, Baby P's mother was released by a parole board quite recently as well. And as somebody else, his name escapes me, but there's somebody a few months ago that I made a video about who was moved to an open, uh, he was an ex-rapist or a rapist. Uh, he was released, he was moved to an open condition prison and he escaped and got caught in a few days. So I wonder whether that means that the parole board in general are a bit lenient, which will work in, in Charlie's favour, or if they've taken a bit of a hammering in the press for that very reason, which means that they're going to kind of swing the other way and become quite restrictive. I don't really know what the answer to that is. Very much a case of watch this space. It will be interesting to see. And um, just the last thing on Charlie, I guess, it, it, how hard is it going to be for him to, you know, to, to come back into the real world if, you know, the, the, the release happens and he, and he walks out of those gates? It, you know, in 43 years, he's only been on the outside for 80 days. And yeah. that's going to be mind-blowing, isn't it? Yeah, I think it will be mind-blowing. And you could even argue that 43 years in modern times 
so much has changed in society compared to any other time in the past. Does that make sense? So, uh-huh. I mean, you know, 40 years is a long time, whenever you, but say between the twenties and the sixties, that's a huge leap, but uh, you know, between the thirties and the seventies, whatever, but just the world has changed so much in terms of social media and attitudes from being woke to, you know, sexism to uh, people's identities online. There's just so much has changed technology that it must be a completely different world for him. Having said all that, I do wonder whether his celebrity would work to his advantage. I think that because he's quite uh, notorious and infamous, I think he'd be, he'd get quite a lot of attention, possibly a lot of support because people love him, you know, like, I know he's a violent offender and I, I'm fascinated by the guy, you know, I've never met him, but I like his, I, I feel charmed by him. I like his story. So I think him being generally quite popular and being a minor celebrity might actually work in his favor. Cause I think he'll get uh, attention and possibly even, you know, support, maybe even financial help compared to other people who are not well known. Yeah. It'll be very interesting. Um, we will see what happens with Charlie. We wish him all the best in his uh, endeavors to, uh, to gain release. Okay, we've got 10 minutes left. Um, I am going to talk now about somebody who, you know, we both know, who we both interviewed on our respective channels. And anybody who wants to check out uh, your channel, it's a site for sore minds. I'll post the links below. Uh, some great stuff. Uh, anything from psychoanalyzing internet trolls to the psychology behind stalking. Why is autism being overdiagnosed? Uh, something on John Wayne Bobbitt. Um, and a few interviews as well to boot. But Decker Heggie has uh, certainly taken YouTube uh, by storm, not necessarily for the right reasons. And uh, you had uh, him on your podcast, as I had him on mine. Tell us what you made of of him. And, you know, it's I believe it's your most viewed video on your YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, so he is certainly a controversial character. I, I mean... When the, the interact, I've never met him in person, but I've had him on my podcast a couple of times, and I've been on his podcast. In terms of the interactions that I've had with him, I've never known him to be anything but very polite, very professional, um, very easily approachable. But to I don't fully understand why there's so much vitriol and controversy and hatred that follows him. I mean, there's so many people on the internet that seem to really have it out for him. He is no angel. I don't think you can really expect him to be, you know, he's a self-confessed cocaine addict of 10 years, I believe it was, or maybe 15 years. He's an ex uh, bare knuckle fighter. In fact, he's a current bare knuckle fighter because he's fought quite recently, isn't he? Covered in tattoos. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is I wasn't expecting him to be, you know, a boy scout. I was expecting him to be a little controversial. Uh, I know he's got a bit of a criminal past, but there seems to be this, this, wave of um, internet trolls who are convinced that he's much more than that and that, that his crimes are a lot darker that they involve like you know pedophilia and sexual assault um i don't know why so many people think that and i don't if if it was true and i don't think i don't think it's true but then i don't have all the facts i'm not a detective i don't i haven't looked at any evidence i haven't looked at his file either on professional or personal um for my per- personal interest but if it was true then i don't understand why and he's been investigated. He was arrested fairly recently. So why would the police not have picked up on all those things? That wouldn't make sense to me. You could possibly postulate that there was not enough evidence for one particular accusation, one particular case. But according to the trolls, there's been several different cases. And I think it's very unlikely that he would have done all these things, but been able to hide all this evidence unless he had really big uh, influence in the world of crime. Unless he was like, you know, rubbing shoulders with... with um, politicians or police constables, which I don't believe he does. So I suppose what I'm saying in a roundabout way is I can't see, I can't make a judgment call on meeting the guy, uh, on speaking to the guy in person, whether these accusations are true, but just logically looking at the fact that he's been investigated, I can't see how they can be true and him not being found guilty. I was very similar to you until I heard the recordings of him actually speaking to his mother, which he'd sent to somebody in confidence who then posted it on the internet where he was admitting that these things are on his record, these certain cases, which has been NFA'd, uh, no further action, of course, that means. However, no further action, as we all know, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you haven't done it. I'm also very conscious of the fact that, you know, a woman scorned can cause, you know, maybe an issue, but there is too much smoke without fire for me with him. But as I say, I'm not the judge and jury. I'm not a police officer and I'm not somebody who can get get a conviction. 
um, you know, the nearest I would come, um, you know, to, to anything like that would be would be to, to do jury duty. Um, I don't think YouTube is the right place to do this. I, I think that the, you know, the kangaroo court, which has been set up by some people who've got very dubious pasts themselves, um, is is probably detrimental to any case ever being heard, you know, as a fair trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just going back to, to what you were saying about the kangaroo court, the one thing that really has surprised me and struck me was that just the number of haters that he's got and how many of them sort of latched onto me. And they've kind of stopped now and it didn't really bother me. I, I thought it was just interesting as a social experiment. But after I had him on for weeks, every single day, I'd get a lot of like really aggressive kind of uh, messages from these people and threats to take my channel down and to have me sort of professionally struck off and, and professionally embarrassed and blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I didn't understand. I still don't understand where all this hatred comes from because unless they're actually, unless Deck is guilty, which I, I don't think he is, but I don't know either way. Uh, and they were victims of his. I don't understand why anybody would carry out, carry such level of hate. I still don't get it. It's interesting. It'll run and run. Um, he is certainly continuing uh, to face the music. He's, you know, making content. He's driving his subscribers up almost to 30,000 now. His video content, no matter how long or short, five minutes or an hour gets, you know, in excess of 25, 30,000 views. There is a hell of a lot of interest in this. Is, is that down to the fact that this all started during lockdown and TV is so poor these days, it's full of reality TV shows, it's full of quiz shows that people are more tuned into, into YouTube now and it's it, they like the drama? I think that there probably has been a bit more of a shift over towards YouTube uh, over time. I don't think lockdown caused it. I think it probably accelerated it. I think because people are just interested in uncensored content. Uh, and I think that, so to, like take Jimmy Savile as a perfect example of this. You can watch documentaries about him and I have uh, watched the Netflix one. I thought it was a bit tame, to be honest with you. It didn't really go into many uh, examples of his, it didn't really interview many of his victims and more talked about his background. But Sean Atwood, who's a friend of both of ours, who we've both done work with, did another video, uh, did a documentary on his channel, and it went in much, much deeper. It talked to more, uh, it talked to more of the victims. It raised issues like necrophilia, et cetera, et cetera, which you wouldn't get in mainstream TV. So I think part of the shift is because people want to have content that's not controlled by these commissioners, but that's just completely uncensored and, and natural. So I think that's part of it. As to whether lockdown, I think lockdown probably speeded it up. I think lockdown also probably encouraged a lot more content creation because you've got people who just have more free time. And in fact, you know, my channel was born uh, during lockdown because I had more free time. Um, but having said all of that, I'm, I'm, sh I'm not ashamed is the wrong word, but it's a pity to have to say this, but I do think that drama you know, sells, it brings people in. So as you say, Dekahegi is the, I think it's the second most viewed on my channel. The first most, most viewed is my psychoanalysis of Jimmy Savile. But I've done like well over 150, probably close to 170 videos. I've done educational videos where I talk about, you know, in depth in, in all these cases. I talk about the, I educate basically the legal aspects, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares about that anywhere near as much as they want to hear decade sweat about whether he's guilty or innocent so i've kind of learned the hard way that what you said is exactly correct drama sells people care about getting into slagging matches on the youtube comments more than they they do about learning the stuff that i can teach them about mentally disordered offenders so aside for sore minds you started that as you say because you had a little bit more time you know have you enjoyed it forgetting about the the, the internet trolls have you have you enjoyed doing it and what, what have you got planned for that channel moving forward um if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I, I've not enjoyed it yet because I feel like the amount of time I'm putting in is not yet uh, reflected by the uh, attention that it's getting, the viewership and the number of subs. Having said that, it is improving. So in the last sort of month, it's been way better than the entire 18 months before then. So I, I'm always in like struggling to, to I've got an internal battle of the amount of time that I put in to make the content versus whether it's kind of, you know, worth it, whether it's picking up enough. And most of the time my answer is, I don't think it's worth it, but I'm starting to change my mind recently. Uh, but in terms of the content that I've got coming up, I, I'm starting to find that I don't have enough, like 
people were making requests for so many different things from reacting to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard to really high profile cases that I'm struggling to keep up with the requests that are coming into my channel. So very recently I've started doing, um, uh, releasing episodes every other day. It was, it was twice a week before, but now it's every other day just to try and keep up with demand. Uh, so yeah, there's more of the same really it, interviewing people who have either got experience of mental illness. So I've got an interview with an ex police officer who got PTSD, same guy tried to commit suicide and was ended up being taken to hospital by his own colleagues, other policemen, uh, to other people that have been in hospital, to high profile cases. Some of them are celebrity-ish that are in, in the, that are trending, like Jimmy Savile, Amber Heard. Some of them are a bit more underground, but still fascinating to me, like various serial killers. So yeah, more of the same, as much content as I can make. That's my plan. Great stuff. Well, the links are below uh, for Dr. Daz's uh, podcast. Well worth a watch. Please subscribe to it. Thank you for coming on. Uh, been fascinating speaking to you. Uh, as always, we draw a close when it gets to the hour mark. Uh, and I'm quite happy to come over and collab on your channel. So uh, if you want to chat about the Cray Twins for an hour, I'm more than happy to do that. Cool. I'm going to take you up on that, Steve. Thank you so much for having me on your channel. Absolute Have pleasure. Have a good day. Mate. Take care, man. And you, Bye -bye. sir. Goodbye.